Welcome to the third episode of Foam Talks, Talent Edition. I'm your host, Miriam Koyman, and this time I talk with Matthew Leifheit, photographer, magazine editor, publisher, and professor based in Brooklyn, New York, and with Ellen Frame, a photographer, writer, curator, professor, and a theater and movie director. Ellen Frame is also the author of the text on Matthew's portfolio in Foam Magazine issue 55, Talent 2020, describing his series Fire Island Night, which Matthew has now retitled to To Die Alive. This conversation was recorded on the occasion of the Queer History Month 2021, an initiative of ILIA, the biggest archive of LGBTY history in Europe, based in Amsterdam. To Die Alive is a fantastical exploration of Fire Island, the historic gay retreat located less than 50 miles from New York City. Ellen Frame wrote about this work. Vivid red blurs of dancers at the underwear party contrast with the starkly lit tableau of naked men in the night. Interracial and intergenerational, posed among stubby holly trees and dunes. Buff silver daddies cluster around lithe young men propped up against trees or sitting on a log. Viagra meets prep. One young man stretches out nude on the top of a boat called Sea Nymph, awaiting plunder. Seen close up are sultry young Caravaggio-esque beauties, their skin glistening with sweat, one with a bloody nose, another clutching fish against his flesh like protective armor. Some recede into the night, their eyes just a glint in the darkness. So nice to have you both here, uh, tuning in, both from New York at the moment or elsewhere? I'm in New York. And I'm in Richmond, Virginia. I'm on my way to a, a residency in Florida. So I'm staying in a hotel along the way. Oh, okay. What, what's this residency about? It's in Key West, Florida, which is um, another historically gay enclave, I would say, or at least open-minded that I started photographing in in 2014. And I got a residency so I can go back and spend a month working on continuing that series. It's called The Studios of Key West. That's exciting. I'm looking forward to see that. It really seems to uh, suit Fire Island or the projects you did on that or to follow up on that in that sense. I don't know if it's connected in any way or if it's just coincidental that it's also a, a sort of gay retreat. A gay place. It's not coincidental. I'm really interested in these places that were once I think when I started working on Fire Island, I was kind of defining my interest as, you know, what will happen to these places, which were, you know, used to be kind of the only place where gay people could, queer people could go to feel in the majority and to feel like they were not outsiders, but part of the, yeah, part of the majority as straight people are less afraid of us or as homosexuality is more accepted in the mainstream in a lot of places places like Key West, Fire Island, Provincetown, which tend to be actually at kind of geographical extremities of the country. It tends to be kind of the farthest place, Palm Springs. What will happen to those places? And so, yeah, I think it's definitely related. Maybe for our listeners, we should start at the very beginning because now we're just heading into it. Matthew, did you suggest, Ellen, to write the portfolio text on your work for Faux Magazine? Or did the editorial team from Faux Magazine come up with that suggestion? or? How did the two of you get to know each other? I came up with that suggestion because I've known Alan for many years and really respect his opinions and admire his work. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Um, We have so much in common. It was just a perfect invitation. You know, it was was a project that was really um, rich and easy for me to write about. I think that Matt's interest in history and legacy is something that I share, that we're both kind of um, deeply interested in and involved with. And also, I had I had come to know Matt in the way that I appreciate him as not just an artist, but also somebody that makes things happen and has the generosity to make things happen for other artists. Um, So he had uh, curated a show at a space that I was very involved with, Baxter Street at Camera Club of New York. And we have a mutual friend who is the photo director, was the photo director of The New Yorker. 
when he worked there as an intern, Elizabeth Biondi. And um, she's, a, she's another kind of maverick. And what I appreciate about Matt and Elizabeth both is that they can make decisions about what they want to promote and um, feature in their various efforts curatorially and as editors uh, without relying on filters, without having something have to be vetted first. And that kind of um, independence and you know adventurousness is so rare in this increasingly corporatized world where everything has to be checked out and scoped first. So, I mean, for instance, you know, Matt's magazine is so impressive in that sense that he is, uh, you know, just doing what he wants to do and selecting people before anybody else has like beamed a spotlight on them. And some of the people that he was publishing were, students of mine and in some cases i wrote little introductions for the magazine as well because of that so our paths crossed in many ways uh including the fact that we both had um an influential teacher and my first photo teacher was one of matt's professors at rhode island school of design henry hornstein who is famous for you know, not only all of his work and books and many subjects, but his instructional manuals on photography. But I had him as a teacher when he was a grad student. And um, Matt had him as an undergrad. Yeah, he was actually my first photography teacher as well. And, and how would you describe his influence? Oh, um, uh, Matt? On me, I wonder. Henry's influence, he... Um, publishing. Publishing. He did. He did his own publishing company. He's published many books. He was also someone who really talked about um, kind of the value of like the work. Like if it was really focused on like he's someone who has structured his life around making photographs. And I think I really got something from him about kind of what it would take to make something of substance and kind of the amount of uh, fanaticism that it takes to um, to try and make something like real and lasting. He's also someone who just does something. He follows his passion. He had great advice, which came from um, his teacher, Harry Callahan, who started the photography department at the Rhode Island School of Design, um, told him, uh, that he should, he was saying, he, he couldn't find a subject. He was a graduate student, he had a degree in history and he was wondering, you know, I could photograph this, I could have photographed that. And Harry Callahan said, well, what do you like to do? And Henry said, well, I like to go bet on the horses at the track and I like to watch country music. And so Harry Callahan told him, well, just photograph those things because at least um, if you're, if you don't get any good pictures, at least you'll have a good time. Um, and so I thought that was valuable advice because I also, I, sh I photograph what I love and what I'm interested in. And, and, in, and on, in these most recent series, even vacation places, I love to have an excuse to be at the beach all the time. Also, you both, <laughs> as, as you mentioned, Henry is studied history and you're both really into history, I think, um, histories. Well, what's the lesson you took from him, Alan? I, th I think, so I was uh, studying at Harvard at the time and I couldn't get into any of the film and photography classes that I wanted to take because I was not a major in that area. Um, so I found this little class that Henry was teaching um, near my dorm in the basement of a community center. And, you know, what I, I think that he gave me was this sense of humility about photography, about deference to the subject matter, sensitivity to the people that you're photographing, to the world that you're entering. Um, and he 
I think had been given that perspective by Harry Callahan, who I think had a humble approach to photographing. And it really meant something because I was at a school among very arrogant uh, professors and other students. Um, and to get a big dose of humility as I was starting <laughs> photography, I think was um, really helpful. I would put myself in the category of arrogance as well, you know, so it was like, <laughs> like coming down to earth, you know, and um, having, a, you know, it's kind of what Matt was talking about. You know, I think the name of his memoir is Shoot What You Love. Yeah. So just this simple uh, embrace, um, an unabashedly affectionate embrace of your subject matter. It's really interesting the the different connections between the two of you. I I still stay in touch with him. In fact, I just talked to his class um, on Friday, and it's a class that Matt took, uh, which normally they would come into New York City from Providence and go to studios and galleries and have direct talks with people. But this year, of course, they're having to do it on Zoom. And it's the only case in any talk that I've ever done where, you know, and it's something he directs the students to do. I am getting email thank yous from every student in the class. Me too. Which is wonderful. I mean, you do, it's just such an old fashioned thing, a thank you letter like that for a talk um, from all of these students. It's wonderful. Well, I hope that any photography students listening uh, to this podcast episode will uh, take notes. <laughs> <laughs> Since you are both professors, actually. Well, you know, while we're on the subject of history and legacy, you know, I've never really asked Matt, you know, what made him particularly interested in these histories, particularly within queer culture? You know, what has driven that kind of interest? It's, it's, you know, not just an interest in history, but it's also, I think, about things, the forgotten, or the things that are about to be forgotten, which, of course, has been a huge subject in a lot of documentary photography and motiva motivating principle. But um, I, I'm just curious if you could answer that. Yeah, that's a great question. I feel like the the root of why I photograph is maybe an anxiety over the passage of time and kind of the slow erosion of things. It's like, t it's terrifying to think about for me. And I, and, I, and I do like to think about how I can be useful as a photographer and maybe that that is a way of being useful to show people and things and places and cultures that are kind of, um, in danger of being forgotten or, I don't know, threatened. Um, and so I guess there's that, um, but that's also everything and everybody, I don't know. <laughs> there's like, I love doing portraiture because it's um, inherently kind of, uh, well, I mean, photography in general is against time in that way. Um, but I also know that I've seen a lot of um, archival materials. I love, uh, I'm a library user. And when you look at particularly materials from gay people in the 20th century, um, there's a lot of holes and it's very sad to me. It's like the, um, the things from people's lives that were worth saving are um, so devoid often of desire and of the, the real things that kind of, uh, shape people's souls in their lives. Like I'm thinking of, um, uh, the painter Marston Hartley's papers are at Yale and he, those, pa those letters are just, they look like paper snowflakes because someone went through with an actual knife and cut out anything remotely you know, homosexual from them. And I remember there's one letter that's just 
the entire page is cut off. And at the bottom, it says the one thing that whoever, I think it was his final lover was doing this before he donated the letters. The one thing that was worth saving says, and as for me, I've got my Guggenheim fellowship, which I thought was so sad that like, you know, out of all of the things that happened in this person's life, whatever grant he got was the thing that, you know, history cared about preserving. And so I think to take on some of that role myself uh, makes me feel kind of useful in a certain way. That's what I've always liked. Part, I mean, part of what I've always liked about photography is that it has the possibility to be kind of directly useful. I would like to get deeper into this when, um, if we can first start with To Die Alive, the series that you created that actually first got into the world and ended up in Faux Magazine under another title that was actually Fire Island Night. Fire Islands, guys, can you actually describe what kind of place this is? Just to start with, because listeners might be tuning in that actually have no idea. And I even didn't know the place myself before I got to know your project, Matthew. Absolutely. It's like a gay sandbar near New York. It's a barrier island, which is very narrow and long that runs along the coast of Long Island. You can get to it in about an hour from New York City. And there are two, there's a long strip of sand that kind of changes. It's very beautiful. It's a, it's a dune environment ecosystem. So it's like a and like a sunken maritime forest. The, the environment is really interesting and beautiful, but it kind of changes shape every year. So the shape of the island and the shape of the beach is always kind of being <clears throat> revised, which I like. And there are two historically gay communities called Cherry Grove and Fire Island Pines. And Cherry Grove is actually the kind of like oldest gay and lesbian community in the United States and is, um, uh, the, the homeowners are a majority gay and lesbian people there. And so, um, you know, in the 60s, this was like a, or I mean, uh, even, I mean, I think it became settled by kind of theater people starting after a hurricane actually in the 1930s, where housing prices had gone down because of this hurricane and artists who were being expelled from the straight communities and other parts of the island, like Ocean Beach, were able to kind of colonize this one particular part of the island and make it their space. Um, and so I went there first in 2014 for a, an assignment for Vice magazine, um, which was about these underwear parties that happen, which are every Friday night, there are these, it's like 500 muscle gaze in a jockstrap or more, like to descend on this bar called the Ice Palace and I was photographing that. And when I went there, I honestly thought this is not my kind of thing, but um, I found it was, it was really one night that I spent there, I think. It was only one night, that assignment I stayed overnight, but it contained what I thought was just like fertile material for much, much more. It was like in, in that kind of one endless night that I experienced there, I, I stayed up all night and I, and I was, and I, none of those photographs are still in the project, but um, I thought I need to come back here and do something. And then in grad school, um, maybe a couple years later, I was looking at all these photographs by Pajama, which was like a queer collective of uh, Paul Cadmus, Jared French and Margaret French. Um, these photographs they made that were very surrealistic in the dunes in Provincetown and Fire Island and uh, in the 1930s and 40s. And that really made me feel that I needed to go back. It sort of was like I had a seed of something in my head from that 2014 story. And then um, those pajama photographs really um, became an obsession. Yeah, I think the historic continuum of um, personalities and different um, oh different moods depending on the decade and the kind of communities that existed decade by decade. Um, the fact that you address that whole continuum in your new body of work is really interesting to me. But also your approach, which is so um, not the dry documentarian 
at all. It's more of a highly cinematic, um, visceral, sensual uh, depiction, um, synthesizing all of those influences. Mm, I like that. Um, the I mean the in the past I actually I've worked as a photojournalist and I've been someone who you know really and I still am someone who loves um, and finds great merit in uh, kind of unstaged out in the world observational photography. Um, but for this series and especially after looking at the those pajama photographs, I think in your essay you wrote that they're like Greek statuary, but it's it's true they're so. Um, highly posed, partly because of the necessity of a long shutter speed sometimes, I think. Um, but the, the, and so for this work, I really thought here's an opportunity to go full camp and like stage everything. So, and really most, except for the, the photographs of, of the underwear party, um, everything in the book is really, uh, or this body of work is really highly staged and to me it's almost related to like consent because I do think this is kind of a private sexualized space and I've heard that in you know the 50s or 60s if you went there with a camera it would get thrown into the bay because this was not something that was meant for it to be um, reproduced and shown to the outside world and so uh, to me having everyone kind of uh, acting out this choreography that I've planned also means that they are all agreeing to be in my images. You know, um, in terms of the different generations that you reference in this body of work, it's also interesting to me that you made a conscious attempt to include young men of color who you know, which is a demographic that has not been acknowledged as visitors, you know, to Fire Island. I mean, I myself have only been out there once around, I don't know, around 1979 for the day. <laughs> so I'm not a habitué whatsoever. Um, but I also think that, um, that's that's an interesting aspect of what you've done, right? You're you're quite conscious of that, I think. Yeah, well, that is, um, yeah. Well, what I'm trying to show, I think, in the way that I I do think of this work, like you said, not straightforward documentary, but I so think this is a an, a, an exact document of the way that I have experienced this place, but also trying to encompass. I don't know my emotions about it and everything else, but um, but yeah, that was at, at actually at a talk I was giving last spring. It was um, uh, someone asked a question, um, you know, uh, about the racial demographics of the place, and aren't all the homeowners in Fire Island white? And I said, yes, I mean, I do. Um, I think it's really the majority of people who are homeowners are white people. And if you're a person of color, you're often there um, for a vacation or you might be someone's sugar baby or you're there with, um, you know, uh, um, employees on the island often I'm, who I meet are, well, this also just applies to younger people. It's like harder for younger people to buy homes there. So there is this like both an age and a race kind of uh, a discrepancy in the demographics across generations. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. But is is Ellen is Ellen then right that you consciously brought in men of color, or did they actually apply to your call for models? Because uh, you had posters hanging on the islands asking for people who would pose for you. So did they actually sign up themselves, or did you consciously bring them in? I think it's a mix. Like demographics of the work reflect kind of how I have experienced the place. Yeah, I know that like Hugh, one person who I photographed a number of times for the series, who is a black man who comes there and spends 
large parts of the summer on the island through a, a summer share with friends um, was telling me that he felt the first time he came there that this was not a place for people of color, but that, you know, ended up finding community there and as uh, a, you know, someone who's gone there for many years. So, yeah, so I guess I just try to reflect reality as I see it. This, uh, this is uh, really interesting to me because I've been wondering, uh, because you told me um, when we were working on the Fom Talent exhibition in preparation of that, you told me that actually when you were sent there for your vice commission to shoot at the underwear party, um, that you that you knew of Fire Island and the gay communities, but that you thought that was something of the past and that you didn't really realize how much alive it still was. And in that sense, um, um, I'm really curious how you now try to restage the reality as it had as it presented uh, itself to you, or if it's if we're more looking at your dream of it, so to say. I think that fantasy is an important part of the way that I want to show reality. I think that any work that I do is going to involve some element of fantasy, but sometimes that's the only way to get to the truth, I think. And also why bother making anything if there's no kind of like magic in it? You know what I mean? Like if it's going to be just, mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I, um, and I don't have any kind of, you know, journalistic obligation here. So it's like, I can, whatever um, methods I, uh, I want, I think I can use to show things the way that I think they are. Um, in terms of, uh, yeah, I didn't really know what Fire Island was when I went there the first time. I think I had just, it was synonymous with kind of gay. If you went there, you were gay, which I guess I think, uh, you know, I grew up in the Midwestern United States and there was um, one of the only gay people in my life was like David Sedaris on the radio. And he had, there's one, I remember one story that he, performed, which is about, uh, it's someone using Fire Island as an innuendo to ask, are you gay? Someone is saying, do you go to Fire Island? Um, and <laughs> that's about all I knew about it. Um, so, but in fact, it turns out there are many, um, you know, most of the island is uh, straight families um, from Long Island. Uh, which is also interesting to me. There's an amazing movie that I want to mention called Last Summer by Frank and Eleanor Perry, which takes place, I think, in Ocean Beach, but it's an incredible movie from, I think, the late 60s, 1969, um, that I think is a, a huge point of inspiration for my work. In what sense is that film an inspiration? Because I think um, I called your work cinematic, and I do think it is, but then I think it's always interesting to ask, like, whose cinema or what cinema do you look at or have you been influenced by or are you thinking about? Oh, for sure. Well, um, yeah, I'm Elizabeth Biondi, our mutual friend, when she wrote something about the work, she mentioned Visconti, which I don't actually know that much about his films except for Death in Venice. Um, but I know that there's kind of a Baroqueness about it that I, I'm a, uh, also interested in. Um, Last Summer is like kind of a tragedy, which I see this work also as a kind of tr tragedy. Um, it's, uh, it's about kind of, um, and I also like the idea of a tragedy in this kind of paradise uh, environment that it's like a tragedy under the sun at the beach um, and it's something that's kind of like you know how wrong things can go uh, even with good intentions or even uh, 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 yeah the kind of the kind of horrible things that can happen kind of within everyday life in a situation that seems very innocent, um, which that movie kind of, you know, there's this element of like racism there where there are these kids on the island for the summer and they 
it's horrible to watch. They organize a, a date for uh, through an online dating service with a guy on the mainland who's like a, I guess, older Latin man, and they kind of make fun of him. And it's, uh, and then it, uh, they also there's a theme of this like seagull that they they capture and they're trying to turn into a pet. Anyway, it's a it's an amazing film. I'm trying to. Th I mean, I I also. Um, I mean, I love, uh, I don't know how it plays into it, but we both love Tennessee Williams and the, the film for Suddenly Last Summer is uh, something that I can't, can't not think about uh, in, in any project. But also, I guess, you know, with that, there's sort of this, you know, image of, uh, turtles making their way to the ocean on the beach and being eaten by a swarm of birds that's turning the sky black. And, uh, uh, you know, I think it's, well, I forget what the line is, but Sebastian, the dead character, says something about, I've seen the face of God. And it's in this kind of like evil, evolutionary, primordial scene. I'm just curious how you constructed the storyline because you're, you're still working on um, turning to die alive in, into a book. As I believe, or have you finished it already? I'm like working on finishing it. It's a it's a long term project. I think it's you know I really s s went there first and started taking images for this assignment, which I thought I think of now as kind of notation in 2014. So it's been you know six or seven years of this project, and I felt you know maybe two years ago that I was almost um done with it but i thought i'll try and push it a little further and there is something really exciting and challenging about trying to go into the same situations and the same you know trying to create to push a little further and to innovate within the same kind of set of circumstances and the same general parameters i think can be really fruitful and has been but then um yeah at least for this moment in time i feel like i i am in danger of repeating myself like i uh i put I, there was like i was doing a photo shoot of like a, um um a, of a guy in a tree and i thought how many ways can you do a guy in a tree how, <laughs> how many ways have i done it i was wondering because you the project is set up in different chapters right can you maybe walk us through the chapters of how the strategy is unfolding so to say yes well i think of the this work in particular as being a real um, collection of images. They're not, most of them are not self-sufficient images. They're kind of, they're pictures that are meant to be seen in a sequence. Um, and uh, so um, the first chapter takes place in a hotel called the Belvedere, which is a very, it's built in 1957. It's this very campy, um, ornate, men only, it's still women are not allowed to this day, clothing optional, uh, kind of sex hotel that's amazing. Um, and so it's pictures of that and also the Ice Palace's underwear party that kind of uh, give way in the second chapter. I'm imagining it's kind of a flight out of, um, and there are many, there are recurring characters. There are people that I photograph many times or people who are kind of muses to me, but then uh, I'm also like quite, promiscuous in the work, I think, where there's many different subjects. Um, and I think, um, you know, so it's a flight kind of out of this burning hotel, which I've, I'm staging images to look like there's a fire happening at this, the Belvedere Hotel, which to me is kind of a symbol of these, um, you know, it's, it's like even two generations ago, or, you know, many generations ago of fags of like gay men built this place and it's uh, kind of a flight out of there and into the forest which is like uh there's a uh it's called the meat rack there's like a uh it's a forest of tiny holly trees that are very gnarled and grizzled which is a historic cruising ground where um uh you know it's uh people really used to, it used to be a really active cruising site and now it's a fairly if you know in the summer a fairly active cruising site 
Um, and so there are pictures in that area, which are sort of a green, they're mostly kind of green and dark brown and black. The first chapter is very colorful. Um, and then in the last chapter, um, it's kind of uh, pictures of the ocean, of the landscape, of shadows of people, of kind of ruins of buildings, but not um, as many images of people, and of kind of fragments. So to me, it's kind of like um, a flight out of the built environment into kind of the most eternal space, um, which for me, the great like majesty and beauty of the island is um, the ocean and the beach and kind of the weird power of this huge expanse of space and the and the violence of the ocean and the you know it's um it's primordial uh yeah so that's kind of the structure but i am still working on it i think i have i just went out there in the snow um to photograph because i had never been out there during like a blizzard it's hard to be on the island in the winter because there are not many ferries that go there and um, no stores are open. There's no place to buy food or anything. Um, so I was doing that. There was a, and there's just, there's basically like two more things in my mind that I want to photograph. And I feel like this, at least this version of the book will be complete. But I also think it's some place where I will continue to go for many years and, you know, who knows in the future. What was it like to be in the, in the snow and the winter and the blizzard? out there it was it was crazy i don't i'm not i uh you were alone right yeah i was alone i'm not one of these like male photographers that likes to talk about how you know my endurance and whatever it is but i it was a real thing where i had to so the most of the bay was frozen over and I didn't plan it very well because I was just in my apartment in Brooklyn looking at the snow and thinking, why am I not there photographing? Why am I sitting here? And so I just went and the most of the bay was frozen and the only ferry I could get was to a place called Ocean Beach, which was actually five miles from where I was going. And so in the blizzard, I had to carry all of my equipment for five miles through the snow to get to like a shelter. Uh, which was like, and I had to bring food and like water with me. So it was extreme. And I don't even know if the photos are that good. Like I've been looking through them. I'm not sure it's like, you know, the revelation that I thought it might be. But I think to include that note in there and to, I think a part of kind of this feeling of an endless night or a, a um, uh, it should include kind of a seasonal change that there can you can see as the book is progressing that there's like um, years going by. Yeah, time is a very interesting element actually in this project because on the one hand, many things you're describing about this project give me give me the feeling of transience, and yet your photographs also expose this sense of timelessness as if we are traveling through history and feels so Baroque and at the same time, it's contemporary. Um, yeah, how do you relate to the sense of time or what do what is it that you wanna express with that? Well, I love Alan in his essay. This is our, Henry Hornstein, our mutual friend, I remember once said like, Alan's very good at just cutting to the heart of exactly what it is you're trying to do in your work. And that's why all of his students love him. Um, but you. he, there, <laughs> um, in the essay that he wrote for the magazine, he said something about the work being a palimpsest of many nights and many histories, which I completely agree with. And I think that the, um, to me, I really, there's all, but it's related to me to this feeling the first time I uh, the first time I went there of this kind of endless night where you have to get everything in and often people are going there just for this you know one kind of you know spectacular condensed experience um, and so yeah I want to touch on many different points in history and creating I think there is an interesting 
way that like, um, you know, for instance, the, the Pines, that one of the gay communities was really built by uh, like gay clones in the seventies. And that's a culture that still exists. It's just sort of transitioned. You know, this was a, um, a group of people who sort of adopted a similar uniform and a similar style in order to feel that they were, and a similar taste in music, you know, similar culture to kind of feel that they had uh, something to belong to, I guess, instead of, you know, people who had been pushed out of mainstream society. And then that culture still exists. It's just transitioned to more of a like pride by Citibank gay um, culture where there's, you know, it's still there. And so I think to photograph what exists there now and to think about what has existed there in different points in time, you can photograph there as if it's still the 70s sometimes, you know, but I also there, there are very specific um, markers that I have included in the work, like a neon colored jockstrap or, um, uh, you know, a TV in a hotel room or something like that, that I want to be sure to place it in current day so that there can be this back and forth in time, but that it's always kind of slightly tethered to um, the present. Well, speaking of that, no, going uh, back and forth awesome. in time, um, Alan, you um, you also wrote in the in your phone magazine um, essay on Matthew's work that Matthew actually found a house rented in the 1970s by the photographer Peter Hujar and his lover, artist Paul Tech. Um, Alan, what 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 can you tell us about this uh, part of history on the island? You, you know, well. I mean, one reason that I never went there when I was Matt's age was I associated with that conformist culture that he was describing, um, which I was reacting against. So it was very interesting for me to discover that Hujar and Tech had gone to this, had gone out there, but they'd gone to this more remote, tiny little enclave. Um, called Oakleyville and, you know, um, and more recently I've, I've read about some of the um, life out there in the late forties, uh, reading the Richard Avedon biography. He went out there with some other photographers and editors and um, people like the paint, you know, there, there was an artist community that was less conformist then and certainly uh, Hujar, who was a fixture of the East Village, you know, and a, a sort of emblematic of a real downtown stance that was anti-clone and anti-conformity. Um, it was interesting to think of his association with it. Also, Paul Tech, who was just such a unique, um, non-conforming personality and um i think that paul tech is of of the characters that M matt's project might reference is definitely one of the most interesting to me i guess because uh his he had a there was a lot of mystique around him at his height in the 60s and early 70s, but when, but later his career sort of tapered off into this obscurity that, um, and then he died of AIDS a year after Peter Hujar, so that his posthumous reputation has developed like Hujar's. And ultimately, you know, they've both had museum shows in New York. But, um, you know, Paul Tech was, um, I mean, he made that piece, Death of a Hippie. He, he was very alternative, very kind of organic and cosmic at the same time. And, um, and, and very sophisticated as well. And uh, I think his still understanding him, he's kind of elusive 
because there were even a lot of major pieces of his or pieces that have been lost because they were so um, fragile to begin with. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm really interested in like how Matt has probed into that legacy. Well, the artwork you, you were just uh, referring to uh, of um, Paul Tech was also um, something of that artwork, the death of a hippie ended up in, in your project, right, Matthew? Um, almost. Well, there was a, so that piece, <laughs> Tatum, which he referred to as, uh, it was a critic referred to it as the death of a hippie, but it was really a self-portrait of Tech, who was not a hippie, and I think he resented that title. But um, uh, um, there is a particular there. I mean, lightly, you know. I it's I I want to start also by saying that the um, you know I need to give credit to Marcelo Gabriel Yanez, who is a uh, an art history PhD student at uh, Stanford, who. Um, Alan introduced me to in the first place because Marcelo had um, uh, restarted this newspaper called Picture Newspaper that was um, published by someone called Steve Lawrence in collaboration with Peter Hugar in, I guess, the 70s. And it was um, and it was assembled partly on Fire Island on the front porches of these people who were staying out there. Um, and he really um, has studied a lot um, uh, his undergraduate thesis at NYU was about Hugh Jar and his circle, and he really um, knows an incredible amount about these people. Um, and my, I guess my interest in tech came from Hugh Jar and also from talking to Marcelo. Um, and Hugh Jar, really, my my. I mean, going back to Henry Hornstein, in class, Henry Hornstein said, you need to go to the library and check out this Peter Hugh Jar book. And it was, this was when I was an undergraduate student. Um, and it was before anyone, it was before the renaissance of Peter Hugh Jar and his show at the Morgan Museum. And the Rhode Island School of Design Library, where I went to school, had his, the only book published in his lifetime, Portraits in Life and Death, in the library. And I remember it just being this revelation to me. Um, it was, uh, you know, I well, I got into photography because of Avedon. Going back to the, uh, Alan mentioned Philip Gefter's new biography of Avedon, which do, does have this amazing chapter about going to Fire Island with these other art directors and artists, and um, they go to Cherry Grove. Um, uh, but you know, Avedon was also a huge influence on on huge R and kind of a friend, brief confidant. And um, and so I guess in in my work, my undergraduate thesis work was basically a love letter to Peter Hugh R. It was kind of square, black and white pictures of um, my life and the people around me. Um, and in this work, I don't, I mean, there are, um, someone brought up his work in relation to my Fire Island series recently, and I was almost surprised because I feel like to me at this point, like his work is kind of just the air that I breathe. Like I think I have absorbed so much um, from looking at Peter Hujar's photographs that I'm not really directly like trying to reference them. I'm just like uh, probably unconsciously you know, in love with him and it comes out. But then um, in terms of Paul Tech, it's like uh, he, um, yeah, he did have this piece uh, called Tech's Tomb, which was, he was kind of obsessed with a ziggurat shape um, tomb. And in this piece, you would go into the, the ziggurat and lying on the ground was a wax cast of Paul Tech um, laid out for burial. Uh, and in my work there are, I do reference this kind of ziggurat shape um, throughout where particularly the island is building these artificial dunes to try and keep it there because it's under constant threat of erosion. So they're pumping sand out of the ocean and they build it into these kind of um, stepped pyramid shapes 
uh, and then it, it eventually kind of collapses into a, a new dune. So I've been photographing those. And in my mind, it's related to tech, but who knows, you know, for anyone else, I, I'm not sure it would be. Um, and then, but I do reference specifically, there was a piece, I think he had a, um, you know, a really extensive show of his um, installations in Germany, I forget in what, what city, but um, uh, I think in the, well, late 70s, early 80s. And there was after he had, he had made a piece in 1969 called Fishman, or sometimes I think it's labeled Birth, Death, Fishman, which I really like that title. And it was kind of, it was installed in this retrospective after the tomb. And it was kind of a symbol of rebirth and resurrection. And it's this man surrounded by fish sort of being, um, you know, buoyed to the surface with these fish that are tied to him. And so I definitely do have this one uh, picture of my friend Peter Kramer, who's a performance artist and is like one of the, one of my great muses, especially for this work. I, there's so many pictures of Peter in it. and. Um, there's a picture of him surrounded by fish, which I've titled after the tech piece. But I do, I'm really conscious of like, you know, I don't want to like, you know, skin my heroes and wear their bodies around. You know what I mean? Like, I feel mm -hmm. like I want to try and kind of name my, I want to name my heroes. I want to like, point out the constellation of people who I am looking at as I'm making this work, but I have no desire to like emulate them. No, no, but it's interesting how this body of work is referring to so many histories that people might not know about. It's so interesting how it involves so many histories uh, all in that palimpest as, um, as Alan described it so beautifully. Uh, and another reference actually that Alan mentions in his text is Notes on Camp by Susan Sontag. And I was wondering, because it's just mentioned very briefly, if, Alan, that was your way of saying that Matthew's work is also camp? No, but I mean, that, but I think that there is, it does apply in a sense. I mean, the, his use of the Belvedere, for instance, is totally that. And I think, you know, this, um, uh, like a uh, whole, you know, kind of institutionalized camp culture. Um, that place with its um, kitsch um, grandeur <laughs> is camp. And I know, but I, when I was referencing that in the essay, I think I was trying to, you know, and connecting him with, with Sontag, I was, I was just creating the nuance of his, um, intellectuality, also his sophistication, you know, that um, Sontag, the great American public intellectual, you know, was, um, talked to him, you know, they were close and dedicated her book to him and got, you know, that idea through him. And um, it's, yeah, it was, more, it was more about his scope since, since I think in, in some ways, you know, his work was so radically alternative in terms of sculpture and especially sculpture at that time that, and, you know, and, you know, as uh, Matt said, the pejorative about hippie as being associated with him, um, that one needs to remember also, though, his um, intellectual kind of um, scope. I think of, um, in terms of camp, the, the artist Mark McKnight said something that I really think is true of this work, that there is a kind of camp that arises from total seriousness sustained throughout this body of work, where it's so, every, the gazes are so intense, everything is so um, kind of rigidly posed, that there is a kind of humor that arises over just, over just the the high emotional tenor sustained throughout, which I agree with and like about it. <laughs> uh, I also think, I mean, do you feel, because I sort of feel these horror tropes, it's like cinematic horror tropes of just, you know, the blood, um, the kind of stare, the zombie, you know, a sort of zombie stare sometimes, 
a ghoulishness, a morbidity, but kind of tongue in cheek. To me, it comes more from like that kind of like, and and you know, the very uh, low key lighting. I feel like one of the main visual references for the work is the photographs of Bill Henson, the Australian photographer. And when I see that body of work that he made called Looks and Knocks, to me, it kind of there's these these kind of wet figures seen in the distance in this very cold light and it's it's like it reminded me of like um actually of florida i remember when i was a kid i i took a tour through the everglades on a fan boat and you see it was at night and they point these lights out into the swamp and the the alligators lunge out at you and i thought if i could do this but in like the cruising ground of fire island i would be happy you know <laughs> You know, which which is not to take away from the thing that you're also doing, which I think is acknowledging um, it now as this memorial ground. And, you know, primarily because of AIDS, but also, I mean, beyond that, we think of, you know, the whole, its whole history with um, gay people. I mean, the Frank O'Hara dying on the beach, uh, et cetera. I mean, yeah, yeah. pre-existing AIDS. Yeah, I mean, one part about the, you know, this uh, um, working on really the the photographs about the meat rack that I, I learned a lot about. Um, I'm trying to think of, there was one uh, like Violet Quill writer who, um, God, I don't remember his name, but someone wrote about reciting the opening lines to Dante's Inferno as he walked into the meat rack at night to have sexual encounters. <laughs> and there's also like, um, uh, there's also the, you know, during the AIDS crisis, I think a lot of, or the height of the AIDS crisis in New York, the a lot of people's ashes were spread in the meat rack because their families maybe didn't want them. And this was someplace where people's friends knew they had been happy and it's very beautiful. So when I think about that landscape, I really think about the trees as like um, kind of living embodiments of my ancestors in some way. And I guess in, you know, relating back to an interest in history, I think part of why I'm interested is because I do feel that there is this like silence, like in the previous generation, some of the artists who I might have, um, looked up to died much too young and are not really around to uh, uh, be my mentor all the time, you know? So I, I think, yeah, that's definitely an interesting one. And Matthew, I just, I just need to ask, um, why did you decide to change the title of the project to, to Die Alive? Yes. Well, it's because I think photographers are um, conditioned. We were just talking about this actually. I think photographers are conditioned to call things the most boring thing possible. And so when I was working on the series at first, I thought I'll call it Fire Island Night. And because there's a way where like, you know, in photography you're relying often on, you know, collaborations with the world and what exists. And I think it's just, I don't know, there's a dryness about titles often, but I think if there's room for something kind of more poetic and expressive, definitely we should use it. And so the title To Die Alive came from, um, there's an Ariana Grande song, which is an old one that's I think still the favorite of gays worldwide that's called um, Break Free. Um, and it's, I remember I was in an empty gay bar maybe two years ago on Fire Island, listening to them play that song at like, it was like an empty dance floor with a disco ball. And there's this one part of the song that always sticks out to me that it's, um, she says, I only want to die alive, never by the hands of a broken heart. Don't want to hear your lies tonight, now that I've become who I really am. And it's so bizarre. I don't even know what it means, but it's stuck into this really um, pop song and it's this really dark lyric. And to me, um, there's something interesting there. 
And also it's just um, reflects, I think, the spirit of hedonism of the island. I think the hedonism and the tragedy that I'm trying to show. Um, but as a side note, I'm also, I, so I publish books and magazines and I'm working on a book of Alan's work, which actually this came about after we collaborated on this feature for Foam magazine. And we were thinking about a very dry title called, you know, NYC 1981, because the pictures are taken in New York from 1981, but instead we're titling it Fever. And I think in my heart, I always think the more evocative title is the <laughs> one for me. <laughs> um, yeah. It's it somehow to die alive and, uh, and then thinking of what you just said about uh, the many people who could really be themselves uh, in those, during those nights on Fire Island and then when they died of AIDS that their ashes were uh, brought there. It's, I don't know, it also kind of resonates with the title to die alive somehow uh but that's just just a thought that came to my mind just now i'm excited about the title i mean i was telling it i was talking to an old an elder, elderly poet friend about this title and i said i'm not really sure what it means to die alive and she said i know i know what it means <laughs> i didn't ask but i think um uh, <laughs> but i do i <laughs> didn't care to explain <laughs> No, it seemed like something it, too, it would be too private to ask. Um, anyway, okay. um, yeah. And when um, when can we expect the book? I don't know. I'm like, I mean. Um, you did say already that it's an ongoing project, but just it's just out of curiosity. When When can we hold this project in our hands, so to say? Yeah, I mean, for me, I look, the book is really the, I mean, I have had a couple of shows of this work in New York at this point, and I would like to have one, you know, when the, all of the work is done, a sort of larger culminating exhibition. And it's been great to have the work in the traveling shows with foam in Europe. Um, uh, and in terms of the book, I like, I go, I mean, I go back and forth every day. I do feel I remember listening to a podcast that Alan did for the, the Magic Hour podcast, and he was talking about his work uh, in the book Detour that he made in the 90s that, um, and saying that he came back from making this work in Europe. And, and Alan, I think that something like I, you know, I, I wanted to be known for this work. You knew that it was good and you wanted to be recognized for the genius of this body of work. And I I feel similarly about my <laughs> Fire Island series where I feel like, um, I don't know. I get, um, well, this is another tangent, but my New Year's, I made a New Year's resolution, which was that I would like to regain the arrogance of my youth. <laughs> and I feel, like, I feel like every year that goes by, I become a little more timid or a little more um, cautious. And I think in some ways that's good and maybe just part of growing up. But I think that also to be an artist, sometimes you need to be able to say, I'm the only one who can articulate this this way, at least, you know, not to say I have the right answers or I know everything, but just to say that I, I'm the only one who knows how to do this in the particularly the particular way that I feel it should be done. And so I feel that this book very accurately articulates my feelings about this place and about uh, generational change and a lot of things. And so I feel, you know, I feel in a certain way there's a comfort in that where like it could be published after my death and I would, and I still think it would be good, but then, but anyway, but I would like for it to be done in my lifetime. I think um, maybe in the next year or two even, um, and I'm talking to different publishers. I do, I, you know, I publish books myself, but I think I would, I bring a lot of, I think I bring a lot to the books that I publish um, as a publisher. And so I really would like to work with, um, someone else on publishing this book who's going to have opinions about it and who I can have the conversation with. And so I've been talking to different 
publishers, but I don't feel in a tremendous rush about it, if that makes sense. On one hand, I desperately want to have this book out and hold it in my hands and have everyone say, isn't this genius? And then, but on the other hand, I sort of feel like I have enough <laughs> confidence that it's good that I'm not like um, desperate to get it out. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. <laughs> I think the thing that you have to think is um, your own, uh, you know, how much does it satisfy your own taste, your own desire to see something interesting, you know? And if you're yeah. satisfying yourself to a great extent, then, you know, release it and you just can't be responsible for everybody else's, uh, you know, um, gravitation, you know? But your own is the thing that really counts. That's the driver. And when you feel that about your own, the whole thing, you'll know it's complete and, you know, and then you get behind it because anything, you know, made today anyway has to go through a whole period of time and, you know, where it settles and is evaluated and people, you know, come to value it more or less. But I think to um, put it out there, you know, it's like driven by your own satisfaction with it. I think that's a, it sounds like a beautiful final reflection to, to end this conversation with. When can we expect the publication Fever you're making with Ellen? Mm, well, that we can tell you. There is, um, so that's being printed in Barcelona on March 1st, and it should be out in April through Matt Editions. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's color work that Alan made in mostly in 1981 in New York City. There's a preview of the book in the current issue of Aperture Magazine, Utopia. And there is an essay in the book by the curator Drew Sawyer, which is thorough and, 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 and a, a really wonderful essay by Alan and interviews that he did with some of the people in the book. I'm really curious to see more of your collaborations because your lives and careers seem to be so intertwined. So I'm curious to see what else you guys come up with. <laughs> but thank you so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure doing this. Great to chat with you both. Yeah, thank you, Miriam, for giving us a reason to do this together. Thank you for listening to another episode of Foam Talks, Talent Edition. If you want to learn more about Matthew's publishing, please check out mateditions.com. Keep an eye on our social media for the upcoming episode. See you next time.